Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari, thanks for being here, and I could not be more excited about today's episode. I have a guest on, and we are talking about social media, cultural institutions, and the art world's view on realism compared to the world at large, and so much more. My guest is Seema Rao, the principal at Brilliant Idea Studio, a consulting firm for cultural organizations. I hope you'll enjoy this wide-ranging interview where she shares her knowledge gained from over 20 years working at art museums, including the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Akron Art Museum. I first discovered Seema on TikTok with her fabulous art history and art criticism account Art Lust, definitely worth a follow, where she covers all sorts of topics such as the art world's attitude towards realism, the male gaze, and anywhere that art meets cultural events. Basically, she's an art education on TikTok. Definitely recommend following her. But don't worry if you're not one for TikTok. She also hosts the Artless podcast. It's more long form. And definitely go listen to her podcast after you finish listening to this one. I had such a blast talking to Seema. I found myself thinking about this conversation days, if not weeks, after we chatted. So sit back, enjoy our conversation, and check out the show notes for more information on how to follow Seema and her wonderful art content. Welcome so much, Seema Rao. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been a big fan of yours for a while. You've been on TikTok for about a year, a little over a year. Is that right? A year in May. A year in May. Oh, man. And you've already made such a huge and I would say very positive impact on the art space. So I am so excited to talk to you. Let's just jump in. So I'm curious like I'm sure most people are with how you got into the arts. So what fascinated you about art, art history, and how did you come to your job where you're at now, both with being the principal of your company and then also being on TikTok? It happened was museums for like years and years and years and years. I was on Vine. I was, um, you know, I did Pinterest for an organization. I did Instagram for teens for organizations. So what happened was I is a very young kid and I feel like maybe I wonder if this is true for you, too, but. I was one of those people who was able to render. So when I was very, very little, I would draw and people would say to me, oh, my gosh, you could draw. And so I thought, well, I could do that. Like, why not? You know? Absolutely. No, that's incredibly relatable. And it's actually right? something. Yes, I have a question later on, but we'll go ahead and cut to it. So I have an opportunity to speak to my son. He's in first grade and I'm going to be mm. teaching them an art lesson. And I was thinking if I could say anything to a group of first graders, what would I say? And the first thing that popped into my head was you don't have to be good at drawing to be an artist. <laughs> Yes, yes. Or vice versa. Like we were talking about. So I also have a podcast and my co-podcast person is a professional photographer. And she was saying the same thing. But I was saying to her, what if we said that drawing because I'm able to render. But like if you asked me to be William Blake, I couldn't do that. Like I'm not a, I'm not I'm just not like I'm not actually I'm creative in many ways, but I am not visually creative. But I could draw, I could draw anything if I see it. And so yeah. people perceived that as good when like, I don't actually want to create anything. I'm just not creative in that way. 
it's neither good nor bad. It's just who I am. And so like, you know, and I think for people, the problem I always had is that like as a kid, they were like, but you're good at drawing. And I was like, but like, I can see this and make this look realistic. Right. But it doesn't mean that I'm trying to tell you any story here. Exactly. And so, so interesting. Yeah. And so like, I think that it, you're right that anybody can, be, you don't have to be good at drawing to be an artist, but you also don't have to draw realistically to be good at drawing. Absolutely. No, I, th I think that's such an interesting and opposite and unique story. So I'm wondering if what happened to you, like what happened with me was you were kind of good at rendering and you sort of got funneled in this art track. You know, you're the art kid and it sort of, yep, it becomes exactly. a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Exactly. It's a positive feedback loop. So, but I knew that I wasn't, I didn't want to do that. My best friend was really like artsy, like felt, felt feelings that I just wasn't, but I really loved art. And so I basically went in, even in high school, I wanted to work in museums. So my whole career, I wanted to work in museums now I'm consulting and I like it because one thing I think is hard and I think this is true when I've talked to a lot of artists over the years you know working in museums you talk to artists constantly the thing that's very hard for me about working in a museum and I suspect this is true for artists is that your life and your interests and your goals they're all combined you have no out you're it is like like what are you doing for a hobby talking about art what are you doing for work talking about art <laughs> And so Absolutely. it was, it's very hard. You have no downtime at all. So I left and like, so I started uh, my personal TikTok in May, but I had been the museum social media manager for TikTok for an organization prior to that. And so I already kind of knew what like my voice was going to be. I kind of had like a sense. So I can't, it looks like I showed up here, but I had like been doing it kind of um, in a different way. Like, and I had different rules, you know, when you work for an institution. But I think that one thing that I got was, the space to be able to think about art mm, because yeah. it wasn't my job right right so you feel now like your TikTok presence is more of like your hobby or do you yeah it an oh interesting I okay. think I think I don't so I don't think of it it's more than a hobby I would say it's still my passion art is still my passion but I treat it sometimes like a hobby in that I can have professional distance I think that you know like even I think like people who are working in art history, we I'd be writing lists of shows that I could curate. I could never look at an artwork and just think, hey, that's cool. I'd be oh, like, yeah. where's the next, what's the next trend? Yeah. You know, like, is it going to be South Korea? Are African artists going to be going down? Like, I couldn't just be like, hey, I like that artwork. Yeah, I, it's funny because I can, I almost feel like I sense this joy and playfulness in your account. And now that you say that, that totally makes sense. Because especially if like you already, you know, at such a young age in high school knew that you wanted to work with art history or museums, and then now you're sort of free again. And I think that that's, if there's one thing I've learned about social media, it's that your energy definitely shows up on camera. I, I know it's a weird sort yes. of woo-woo. No, thing, it but... is so true. I can always tell if somebody was pissed off or like into it, like a lot of museum accounts, I gave a talk to the National Museum of like the Curators Conference. And I was saying to them, and like I was saying, you know, like I said something very similar. People can tell, like they can tell if you're uncomfortable on camera. They can tell if you're uncomfortable talking to general audiences, they can tell. And so somebody said, so I meant it like, just try to be more comfortable. And then one of them said, but does that mean like maybe we shouldn't do it? Oh. And I was like, no, I mean, you can find your own voice. Like, I just meant like, find your voice, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
not discouraging but, you entirely. I'm not just, telling you yeah. not to do it. I was like, well, no, I just think you want to go into it with like your eyes open or whatever. But, yeah. but it made me laugh. But it's because I see like, so I kind of don't generally, I follow people who are artists and I follow people I like. I don't really have like, I'm not like nominating somebody by following it. It's actually that I just want to see it in my feed or I want to yeah. find it again or whatever. But I generally don't follow museum accounts because as an ex-museum social media manager, I don't want to play favorites, right? Mm -hmm. But I have a lot of connections there. So I often will like, you know, if I need an image or something, I might reach out to them. And I've done museum posts. Yeah, I'm not like getting paid or anything. But one thing I don't do also, the reason I don't follow them is it hurts me when I videos and I think, God bless you. I mean, like sometimes I see people I actually know in real life looking like miserable fools in galleries. And I'm like, oh, poor you. <laughs> I know. No, like, I oh, think that's that a too. Video. Well, and it brings up another interesting topic, which is that, you know, I, I actually have sensed sort of a similar thing with museums also. It's this very like stiff, like, I don't know yes. that I belong here energy. Yes. And I would say that that ends up being, if we're going to talk about like enforcing cycles, it sort of ends up being this weird relationship that artists have with museums. I mean, they're already sort of by nature of their medium put on a pedestal, right? And then they show yeah. up on social media. And sometimes the only way I can describe it is like, they don't know what to do with their hands. Like they just don't feel excited to be here, but there yes. is such an important part of the art ecosystem. There seems to be a bit of a contrast between social media on one side being this almost democratic sort of process and then museums having quite a bit more of a curatorial side of things, obviously. Uh -huh. And I think my belief is that they can work really good in tandem, that there's enough space for both and they can help each other. But it almost feels like sometimes it's a bit adversarial in the sense that I'll just say from my experience, and I could be projecting here, but, you know, especially prior to the pandemic, when all of these institutions, both art and otherwise, hadn't quite embraced social media yet, there was this real absolutely holding at arm's length. And now that the world has shifted a little more online in a more consistent manner, now they're trying to find their footing. And I think artists can feel that. Oh, yeah. good. You know, I so I worked in, I worked in Museum Digital for my whole museum career. And at COVID, all of the digital teams were like, see, we've been telling you <laughs> that we're, we've been saying. And um, a lot of curatorial people were like digital teams kind of led the, these institutions during COVID. And a lot of us digital people left because we mm. were burned out. And one thing that a lot of museums ended up doing was losing ground. Right. They did these interesting things like, for example, we when I was at the last museum I was at, really decided to change everything after COVID. But during COVID, we paid artists to do their process videos they were already doing on their social media to give them a different platform. And like that was completely about shared authority, right? Like, I'm not going to curate it. I'm not going to cut it. I am just going to give you my platform. Mm -hmm. And that was such a powerful moment. And then they've like stopped doing that because I think one thing that, you know, I think that you're right that social is different than curatorial, but in some ways they're both, they both have a certain lack of democracy. I think social's lack of democracy is in the algorithms that the companies are choosing. And curatorial, like in both ways, there's a small group of people who are have some control, right? I think that in curatorial, the difference is that the control is very obvious and they're saying it and they're nominating it and they're public about it. But there's also like, I look at, we were talking to, I was talking to um, with my 
person from my podcast, Sophie and I were talking to a painter, a realist painter who was in a show that I curated. Uh, his name is Frank O'Reedy. And he does these, he um, studied with Bo Bartlett and he does these really amazing, very hyper-realistic paintings of people. He grew up in like a working class neighborhood in Cleveland. Uh, we're like roughly contemporaries. And um, he uh, wanted to make these portraits of people he knew. So blue collar people, tattoos, you know, like spacers. And he wanted these as hyper-realistic, like basically you know, like like a a fine Velasquez, you know, like some sort of like beautiful um, painting, but of people he knew. And right. so Sophie and I were telling him, oh my God, you need a TikTok because you're going to kill it on TikTok because TikTok's desire is all realism. Yeah, yeah. And he said, and he said, and he was very funny about it. He was like, oh, no, I guess I could try it. I'm a little bit old. Like, I don't know how it works. And we were like, we'll tell you. So somebody yeah. was like, don't worry. I got you. Like, we're going to do it. And so, um, but he said it was also like a very difficult thing for him because he gets that the algorithm might like him. Are they liking him because he can paint a thing realistically? Yeah. Yeah. I think that I love that you brought that up. And I think that's really interesting. And I find the same thing too. The thing that social media, the algorithms, and we'll just ignore the fact that there's, you know, larger constructs like the isms right. at play that are right, sort right. of this underlying hand of force or whatever. But putting that aside for a minute, people crave novelty and payoff and, and skill. And it's a really interesting thing that it, it has to be bite-sized, right? And so if somebody can't sit back and have yes. the, the bandwidth and then yes. wants to understand the art, they are going to be impressed by a, a trick, an illusion. You know, I, always, I often tell my yes. students when I'm painting them representation that a lot of times we're, we're creating illusions, you know, with our art and it's fun and it's a trick to the eye. Right. And I think that that has such an immediate dopamine hit that it has become, I think most realist artists online, uh -huh. especially those who are doing it for art, and for technical things, you know, if they're balancing the two, they sort of have to grapple with that in a way that I don't know if it wasn't for social media that they would have to grapple with it. And I think an interesting way that that's, I wonder if this, your contemporary would echo this, but is that skill becomes a lot more forward in your mind as you're making it. And so for mm. me, I have also kind of this working class blue collar, you know, I grew up below the right. poverty line background and skill has become something that I weave into my artwork to sort of reckon with like my own family's working class roots. And it's not a mm -hmm. huge aspect to what I'm doing, but it's something that I think if it wasn't for social media, pointing it out, it wouldn't be as cognizant in my mind. And I just, I'm curious if other um, mm. realist artists, artists sort of feel that way, but also it's, you know, I think it's interesting because I think for me, I would be doing realism regardless. You know, another reason, another layer to my choice to do realism mm. is that I don't mind speaking to everyone and not, and you know, this as a curator, not everyone needs to speak to everyone. That's very true. Speaking no. to everyone. It's um, the, one of the last shows I, I worked on um, was a show about realism and it was actually somewhat like people were like I can't believe you're doing a realism show that's really stupid in museum field and I was like yeah but I want people to like see it and I want them to think beyond the realism and see the meaning and like one of another artist actually that um, I keep thinking about a video of yours that I saw and it was um, and I don't remember what um, fast food restaurant it was it was an like a painting of a fast food restaurant sign yeah yeah, McDonald's and you were talking 
Yeah, yeah. And you were talking about, but what I thought was really interesting, and this is what makes me think of this other artist, uh, Matt Bollinger, who mm. also grew up and I had a, I did a show where I had a video, I had an image, it was a real, he does realism, but it is like cartoony, like the, mm -hmm. the things look realistic, but the people's faces are a little bit cartoony. But, um, but he also was talking about realism. And I think that one thing that is really important to remember is every artwork has a story, mm -hmm. even if it's not narrative. Yes. And so it is telling you something. It's a form of communication. And I think his work and like when I talked to realists, when I was talking to realists for the show, they were telling something. And what you just said is the thing they were wanted to do. They wanted to tell it to all the people, yeah. which is incredibly transgressive. And so I think if you come from a community like you're saying, like you were talking about in this video about how. Um, for a lot of people, fast food just is like, you know, just fast food. But for you, that actually was a treat. And yeah. like you're sharing this whole story within like you were sharing a story that maybe not everyone who saw the painting in a gallery would know because you're not standing there, but it's imbued in it. Right? right. And somebody who maybe came from your background or maybe whatever, somebody who's from another country might have that same experience. Mm -hmm. But you also are doing the other thing, which I think is really important about realism. It is both telling your story, but allowing me to tell my story. Because mm. like my experience with that, when I saw that one is for me as a kid, I we didn't always eat fast food. Um, I was often traveling with my grandmother who like didn't, um, she had to bring her own food because she was a vegetarian and whatever. And so like I saw that as every family trip where I'd have to sit with my grandmother in the parking lot and eat my takeout that like was Indian food. And Aww. it was like the most mortifying, embarrassing, like, you know, like kids things. Right. But I think the other thing that's hard about realism is not just the fact that you communicate with everybody. It's that you what you're communicating is not the only right answer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that you you said that. And I also think that's something you talk, talk in your talk about in your TikToks well, is that at its core, art is just visual communication. And I think that that's maybe the most important, you know, message to get across to people. Because I think one thing that you're doing, and I would say artists who maybe have some more reach, you know, I, I, I'm talking about things that I think a lot of Americans can relate to and a style that a lot of Americans can, you know, stomach. And I think, yeah. you know, when you get past the people who are there for the novelty or in your case with your TikToks who are there for a little bit of drama and then move on, but you have this sort of next <laughs> level of people who maybe wouldn't consider themselves artists, but they're here, they stuck around. And I think what's yes. so great about what you're doing is that you, you, I feel like you're talking to those people. And sometimes there can be, again, all things social media tend to be really polarizing. You have your, your people who yes. get it, who speak your language, who went to art school, who get it. And then there's everyone else. But I think what you do a great job of is introducing these really important ideas to people who stick around a little longer. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoy doing it. You know, I do think for me, one thing, and I think about all, I mean, I think it's way hard. I was saying actually to Frank, um, about his TikToks, I was like, I am so impressed that artists put themselves out on social media because like, I think about, um, um, you know, like I think about like when artists get slammed, you know, like that, um, I just, God, I can't think of his name and I know his work so well. Um, I'll think of it in a second, yeah. but you know, he did the sculpture in Boston and he got slammed all over, you know, all over TikTok for his um for his sculpture yeah. um uh Hank Willis Thomas and yes. 
I've worked on, you know, I've interpreted shows that Hank Wills Thomas, you know, of Hank Wills Thomas's work. I've worked on it, but I can get why that sculpture was so challenging in a public commission because mm -hmm. if he's done other public commissions, so I know he's done that, but the public is different than the museum goer. And so I, you know, that sculpture, I saw pictures of it in a gallery and it just looked totally different. And so if you think about it, public art is kind of what social media artwork is. Like people are just putting it out there and anyone's going to say anything. And that is like so brave. Yeah. You know, all I do is talk. I mean, I I mean, I get like, you know, we all get like the haters and the blah, yeah. blah, blah. But I am talking like today I talked about Catherine of Medici. Like I don't have anything to do with her. She's not my kid. She's not my mom. Like, yeah, <laughs> it don't matter. You know, <laughs> a little bit and of I distance. Yeah, there's a little bit of distance. And I think. <laughs> Um, I think for an art historian, you know, like that, none of, I mean, that, that gives us a little bit of freedom in the way that artists don't have it, right? Like they're telling you about the story you are trying to tell. They're telling me I didn't tell somebody else's story right. But it's, it can also be really helpful feedback. So I, you know, if anyone's listening, I would definitely recommend creating boundaries and setting limits and finding people who are safe to talk to about your artwork in a meaningful way. Like I have my mentors and my close friends who I can really spar with about my art but I will say because again and this might mm. be relatively unique mm. because I am engaging with things like the American dream and classism and so a lot of people are welcome in my art but yeah. when I get feedback even the negative stuff yeah. and I would maybe even say especially the negative stuff that that's really important and it has mm. really contributed to the direction of my art right if I butt up against something that people have a lot of feelings about I feel like as an artist because again we're in visual language we're not leaning into the buzzwords and the the words that are going to make people mm -hmm. instantly polarized. I feel like a lot of times our power when we tap into that frustration is of course, sift through it, see what's helpful and what's just people being grumpy. But if I can find a theme where, you know, working class people are frustrated because of X, Y, Z, I can then take that and pull that into my art faster than I would think most yeah. artists in most time in history. So yeah. I have to, in order to keep showing up and again, putting I, out that good energy, I could see that. <laughs> Yeah, you 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 have to. Um, I yeah, can see to... that. I can see that. You're saying to me something I hadn't actually thought about, but it makes kind of amazing sense. So, your art is about um, your experience, but also the experience of many people who are on this platform. Yeah. And so, yeah. to understand what resonates with them, you have to listen to them. That makes perfect sense. I wonder though, for like a lot of you know people I know, like I you know lots of students who you know went to. MFA programs, it would be interesting if they required them to listen to people. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, I think that's what makes the difference between artists who are maybe a little more, and again, not everyone has to listen. Not everyone's art is safe to listen. And so I, I want to be careful because, you know, again, I think a huge advantage I have is that I'm white. And so a certain aspect of my humanity isn't always being, you know, yeah. played out and that can really affect your mental health. But, but yeah. I think it's, it, it can be like, it can be really informative, not only to sort of gather what people are thinking, but also it, it reveals a lot of truths in myself, you know, of, mm -hmm class trauma and, you know, poverty and, you know, mm -hmm. what am I feeling? And it's been, you know, I have a, a therapist I go to regularly and occasionally I'll bring mm -hmm. these little bits that happen between my art and the internet and we'll, we'll sort through it. But, um, you know, between all three of those things, it can be really enlightening. I, I would always be careful with people sharing their art on the internet, but yeah, I think, well, I mean, that gets into kind of another thing I wanted to bring up with you is sometimes I feel like there's this 
And I think it's out of safety. And I think that there's good motivations for it, but there's this real desire to sort of dismiss people who don't get it. And again, I think a lot of that comes from safety. And so I understand it, but I, I feel a lot of sympathy and empathy for people who went to art programs who, you know, like me, like my, ours got cut when I was in middle school. I, I didn't have art education yeah. in college. Um, and so there's this sort of like, I don't feel included, so I'm going to lash out in it. And yeah. um, yep. I, I wonder how we can like bridge that gap. Is it our job to sort of, you know, you know, how much responsibility does particularly the outward facing aspect of a museum, how much responsibility do they feel to include those people, not only in like the more practical sense of discounted fees, but in the sense of making them feel included. Again, if our energy sort of feeds through our, yeah. our presence, like how do we help those people feel included? You know, it's a really, so one thing that's very uh, it, I mean, that was my job in museums. Interpretation is what it's called in museums. I hated that term because that's like, I don't need to be your sign language interpreter. Like what? Yeah. It just sounds so hierarchical. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's very tough is that museums, um, the way that their like whole structure and funding is, is so cockamamie. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the money goes to curatorial and to these people whose job is to bring in higher donors and to be academics. And one thing I always used to say is you do know it's actually harder to teach people who have more education. It's sorry, it's harder to teach people who have less education. Mm. Right. Like, you know, they would always look down on anybody who taught children. And you're like, I mean, the people who I teach, I used to teach three and four year olds. They can't use scissors. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, you're you're teaching them everything yeah. at that point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not easy, right? And so, like, I think that um, so what happens is that they they allocate more for the people who teach people who need less arts education, mm -hmm. frankly. And okay. so, but the people who work with the ones who need more arts education get less money, but I think are more passionate, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so, like the educators and then the museum, like social media managers, they're often lowest paid, yeah. but they're the really most passionate about this. And so, I would say maybe 22 years when I was in museums, trying to find ways. And I, you know, I used to train a lot of museum gallery attendants, and I'd say, never and we used to talk about it we'd have these really honest conversations nobody wants to be talked down to mm -hmm. so if you are talking down to someone they're not listening to you and so in all things in language and family guy everything we talked about as equals mm -hmm. what do you need to be able to speak as equals and i think like if you look at museum programs and you look at like the program not the like intellectual scholars lecture but if you actually went into like a children's class you would see that the person who's giving it is the most like warm and interested and um you know like they're the ones who are also asking questions like so you know there's a there's a lot of museum educators who believe that when you're teaching in the galleries you grow a conversation from the conversation that starts there so you don't walk in with a tour. These are not docents who are usually volunteers and they give sort of a rote tour. But if you got a staff member, you would. And I would say like a lot of the reason that my voice, the, my voice, not my spoken voice, but like yeah. the way I talk about art yeah. is because I spent years, like almost every video I've ever done, I would say, is because somebody asked me a question about that once. Yes. yes. Right. And like I was responding to somebody. And I, the thing that's toughest to me and I would say the role of museums doing that should be higher. They are the most visited arts education. Like they are the biggest arm of arts education in America. Mm, yeah. Right. If yeah. you think about it, like every kid in America goes on one field trip. 
Yes. Yes. Sometimes. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh to the art museum. I didn't go to an art museum until I was in college and we had one in our town, but it's, it's in some, so I grew up below the poverty line in the Ozarks Yeah. Um, oh. and we had crystal bridges. So in Missouri? Southwest Missouri. Yeah. 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 So a little, yeah. little North of Arkansas, but um, um, you know, we had crystal bridges, which was a free, it was funded by the wall. Yeah. Family. And they and it, give you free lunches. Oh, oh, do they? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I didn't know every that. school I, since they've opened, every school group that comes in gets a free lunch. Yeah, that's and and it's so, yeah, I, I think it's so interesting because it feels like such um like there's whenever I see the museums now that I have a little more space, I can see like a real intent of outreach. And it just feels like there's just a gap. And I don't I don't know the solution. Oh, there's a the, huge gap. So what yeah. I mean by field trip is not necessarily a physical location to the museum. I mean, oh. they've seen a tour, they've seen a website, you know, like digital is part of that. And so there is no there's no kid in America, no matter how little money they have that hasn't had one experience with a museum. Yeah. Yeah. Online now, especially. Yeah, yeah. Right. Posters and post. I mean, like if you think about across this country, every kid has had some experience with the museum. They just don't know it. Okay. And so I think it's incumbent on museums to push that. I've heard the story many times from lots and lots of people, because in Ohio, even though we have a lot of museums, we also have a lot of places that are really far away from museums, right? Because it's a, it's not as big as Missouri, but it's, you know, it's like pretty yeah. chunk of a state. And yeah. so but everybody has had one thing they've you know like maybe the governor was standing in front of an artwork that was mm -hmm. loaned from a museum everybody doesn't realize it but they've had a touch point with a museum yeah yeah and if that museum hasn't made good on that with those kids mm. yeah you can just experience right we don't you don't have there's no standard there's no standardized test for art museums yeah yeah well and I I, I often feel like part of the problem is less to do with the institution and I certainly can't like diagnose and you know I what do I know but sometimes I feel like it's art in whole so like for a little context yes. like my family grew up you know generations of of poverty working class people so like we're uh -huh. you know we go pretty far back but uh -huh. You know, we loved, I remember growing up, we loved science and um, my, my parents were both really interested in music and they kind of both played, tinkered around with instruments. And so, you know, we, the, the stereotypes about poor people are just not always right anyways. Yeah. But we sort of defied this idea of like a yokel family who watched football <laughs> and that was their only culture. You know, we, I think we're just like most people, we kind of tinkered and had our favorites, but as much as I was an artsy kid, we, my parents you sort of didn't get art. And I don't mean that in a belittling way. Yes, um, no. They just didn't. Well, and it's it's on every facet. So it's the idea. My mom was really crafty and she would go to, um, she'd either dumpster dive or she'd go to thrift stores and she would make her own wall hangings from like dried cool. eucalyptus and ribbons. Wow. And so she was really crafty, but she would do this and sort of joke like, why would I ever pay for art when I can make this myself? Mm. The irony is that she was making art. But art right. has such a branding problem. No, it's so true. Branding is the exact word. <laughs> yeah. That they felt That's, they felt yeah. so distant from it. And whenever I went to school for art, they just, they didn't, I mean, there was no further down for me to go. So there wasn't the old story of like, what will you do? I mean, we were already starving. So it's, you know, but it's, but it's funny because like they sort of didn't get it. They were like, well, why would you do it? But for me as a, as someone who felt, you know, small and kind of without purpose as a kid and even in college, art was a solve for that. All Art was yeah. a way for all of a sudden things clicked and I could talk and I could communicate and mm -hmm. all the things that felt oppressive and heavy about my childhood, I could paint it and make it make yeah. sense and people could get what I was saying. And so 
as a poor person, like growing up poor, I know that art can be a remedy and other kids who, even if you don't make that art, if you see that art, if you engage with it, it can really be a helpful force, but it just has a, a branding problem. If we oh, think of blue so chip, true. we think yeah. of, we hear those numbers and poor people think, what could I do with a hundred thousand dollars? What can I do yes. with $2,000? No, exactly. And exactly. it's this disconnect. Yeah. 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 It is a disconnect. You're saying like such interesting things. Branding is exactly it. I think about this all the time. Years and years ago, I was at a talk by a woman named Marin Alsop, who is, mm -hmm. I think she was the, maybe the head of like the, she was a musician in Baltimore. And I think she was like the head of the Baltimore Symphony or something. She was somebody yeah. musical. Yeah. And she talked about this thing that the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra or whatever had with students. They had like a Suzuki. And my children are both Suzuki musicians. Wow. And I was thinking about how she said that the music, she gave these kids music, not because they needed it, because they, but that she, it gave them an outlet, right? And she said, it wasn't that music, they were all so musical. It's that every day they did it and they were expected to do it. And they were not expected to make music, like create their own songs. They were just expected to repeat the music. So there was boundaries and there was a success measure and you could tell if it was good. You could tell if it was bad. You know, like there's all these systems basically in place. And she said, honestly, that's also like it was basically like she was saying, like, it's the same way with sports. Right. Like, you know how to throw a ball. And she was at this art summit where she was saying, like, in theater arts, it's really hard sometimes to know. And in like, you know, contemporary dance, it's sometimes hard to know. And in visual arts, it's hard to know. But the reason the music people do it is because you do most of music, the way we teach it is replicating yeah. instead of creating. Mm -hmm. But what it only gives is people the skill in the way like you learn how to ice skate or, you know, ski or whatever. And that the skill isn't what's going to share these emotions to mm -hmm. people and that the emotional like outlet that the arts have like listening to music and trying to let your mind go free or looking at art and like all of those things that's what people are missing like basically she was saying and I think for me what's really sad and why I try like because somebody was like why do you keep engaging with all these people who are just like being kind of like doesn't mean anything and like I try to be like because I think you know what some of you will really it'll transform you to be able to tap into something that you didn't know was in there. Yeah. I, I mean, I like to think that if, you know, TikTok was around when I was a teenager before I was in college and picked art, you know, I, I think, I think it would have been really helpful to see. I, I would have loved, there was a video you had, I forget which it was an abstract piece and it was a grid with dots and it was blue, but oh, you were yeah. talking, yeah, yeah, yeah you, were, you were talking about how like your first impression when you experience it is, is right because it's your impression of it. And I, and I think even just hearing that would have been pretty radical as a kid to hear, you know, it's mm -hmm. those things that I wish we experienced first. Like what happens when you cut back art programs isn't just, you know, okay, well, you're not very good at art. It's that a lot of times your first engagement with, with art, the art world, whatever, as mm -hmm. kind of a, a teenager or a grown up is a headline about how a blue chip art sold for 10 times yes. what your whole, what you'll make in yes. your whole life. And so yes. of course that's going to leave a bad impression, but of course. When, you, when you tell people that like the power is in you and however you experience art, 
is valid. And then if you want to get more out of it, learn more and engage and continue to sort of pollinate. I think that that would have been such a better message. And when we miss out on art funding, we miss out on that very human connection. And, you know, I think that there's a lot, I'm very passionate that it's, it can contribute to mental health and it's just like, but I mean, absolutely. (laughs) Like, but you know, I heard this, it was James McAvoy. He said that the cutting of arts education is also so like, it hurts it's like such a classist strategy because people who are upper middle class, like you were saying your family was lower middle class and they didn't really have any understanding of art. My parents were raised upper middle class. I was raised upper middle class, also did not grow up with the arts. Like my great grandmother went to college. We didn't grow up with the arts, but you know, they had arts education in school and I, you know, like, but they didn't, they don't get it. They don't care, you know? And I think for, them as well that said they but they did like I still Mm. went like they still went to a museum once right like so what you've basically meant is that there's a smaller sector of people who have this outer emotions Mm. and then you have a group of people who basically have a very they have more narrow options to deal with emotions and there's like you know, beauty is an important emotion, but that's not the only emotion art has. It pisses you off. Yeah. It like, yeah. right? Like it like confuses you. Those are actually really important emotions to experience in a safe space like art. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think, and I totally agree. And I think another kind of aspect to that is when I think about sort of like the masses, it's not so much that people are visually illiterate. We live in an incredibly visually rich world, especially compared to like other times before, right? We're bombarded with yeah. TV and social media. We look a lot in our life, more so than I think maybe even ever before. But what ends up happening is you sort of have advertising and very little art in its place. And advertising does something where it says, here is visual language and here's how you should feel about it. And art says, here's visual language. How do you feel about it? And when you strengthen one thing and the other thing atrophies, you enter a world where you're visually engaged, but you haven't engaged the critical thinking part of it. And I think that creates a very dangerous you know, world where people aren't sort of engaging critically with the visual landscape around them. And I mean, art education, I mean, I'm so passionate about it. Like, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm so grateful for what you do, because I think maybe some days it feels like all you do is engage with trolls, but I promise (laughs) you there's quiet people out there who are piecing it together in a way that because of cut funding, like they maybe wouldn't understand, but it's, it's, it's why it's important. And you know, oh, just thank you. Really grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I loved what you just said about the why. I do think like, I think so often about like, I have teenage daughters and I often will say to them, what do you think this is ads trying to tell you? Yeah. And like, you know, and they're like, yes, mom, we know it's about like patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. But I think that this idea that we have become inundated with visuals with fewer skills to understand the mechanics of it the reasoning behind it has really made for us to become almost like sitting ducks for some Mm -hmm. of these things that happen right like they don't understand and like whenever somebody says to me well maybe it doesn't mean anything I'm thinking I I, like I always want to be like you know what you just you just got like played buddy you yeah. got played. I don't know what you got played in, but some ad was on TV and that played you. Yeah. You don't put hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into something that doesn't mean anything. So no, no, no. No, like, no. Do you think like, do you think that like that advertisement, do you think like, um, who's the, uh, he used to be the Patriots quarterback. Tom Brady. <laughs> Tom Brady. 
manufactured his persona. Yeah. Like every part of him is manufactured. That man is all made up. Like, you know, every part of him has been a manufactured culture. Yeah. And if you're somebody who's from visuals, you can see like I, you can see them, right? You can see where he's playing up certain things. I mean, yeah. every celebrity like pretend paparazzi, you can tell yeah. because yeah. we read images. And I'm yeah. struck like now that I consult with people, I'll say, well, what do you this is projecting this? Yeah. And they're like, oh, we don't mean that. And I was like, don't you know? Like, <laughs> you yeah. And exactly. they're like, well, no, we don't know. Art World 101. I I have I have a whole like rampage I want to go on about like what critiques in art school taught me about social media because mm. so much like I think people underestimate how much of an action it is to hit publish on something and you know they think oh well I just mean this and I do that but I'm like if everything else is reinforcing something else no matter what you meant it's going to come off totally different and I think art school I mean the fact that we had to have a critique and really get out with every single visual piece of thing that we constructed was so good but it's why it's like I feel like more than ever we need that we need that visual feedback that visual intelligence to sort of combat the world and the fact that it's gone in the other direction is just like oh well and critique like I have to tell you I had to stand up for every idea ever said in, in when I went you know was in graduate school like every comment somebody was ready to take me down and it was very helpful for the people who are on my videos saying like that's not true you know like and it's because actually what it means is that sometimes like there's somebody who's been commenting and I think I see where she's coming from like you said this I think the empathy for the people who are commenting mm-hmm. It was where there's a figure who's who's ethnically African or African American who who was who seems to have been enslaved because of the records of this mm-hmm. plantation where this was made, and she wanted to believe that this was somebody who was in the family who was adopted, but the person mm-hmm. was sold, and yeah. I do, but I like hear what they're saying and I haven't like I don't I'm I'm like letting their people are duking out with their own yeah. comments if, once my comments hit like once my videos hit 10,000 I stop Just like modding comments look the other way I, can't. Yeah. I was yeah. like you know what you're all in there by yourself yeah. but I think it's such a powerful conversation people are having in those comments and what I think is very good is that this person who's commenting and a lot of the other people who are commenting with her are critiquing in an honest and constructive way and that's why I like haven't, I was like, nobody's like being racist. So yeah. it's okay. Like, I'm fine with that. And like, I've had it. Um, I haven't had it on all things. I will say like any video I do, but like Judaism and a lot of ones about Asians, it's just immediate. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I'm done there. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but, but in general, I think it's really helpful. I think the other thing you said a while ago that I want to pick up on that I think is really important. And I think about well, I thought about it a lot during COVID when I was doing a lot of digital for museums. And I think about it even more now yeah. is that people don't realize look as a verb. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an action. It's an yes. action. You're creating knowledge. If you don't realize that, that's because you haven't um, spent enough time real, like focusing on what you're thinking. Yeah. And yeah. teasing that out because the, sa- the same curators conference I was talking to, somebody said I was showing her um, different videos by people who do art history videos. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, this is the thing, friends, like 
people are out here doing it. Untrained people. Like I don't, I don't say anywhere that I worked in museums, right? So you don't really know where I come from. Um, I mean, you could Google me and it's on yeah, my, yeah. my like, but like, you know, like you right. don't necessarily know if you just see me on the FYP. I mean, I think you can tell because of my, some of my word choices yeah. and some of the things, like, I yeah. think you can tell, mm -hmm. but not necessarily, not everyone would know that. Right. Right. Yeah. I think somebody in the arts would know. And, yeah. and so, and so I was showing it to them and their one takeaway was that um, people who are attractive get a lot of views. And they were like, that's very hard. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I think that's very true. And I find it very fascinating that like, it's one of my, one of my old colleagues from, from a museum job, he see, we see each other on my lives sometimes. And he, his wife, he said his, my wife, it drives his wife crazy that people comment on how I look. Now I'll say like, I, I've said to you, oh, I'll say to you, like maybe somebody I have like followed a long time. Oh, I like that shirt. Yeah. Oh, the hair looks good. Like I might say that in the way that you say to another human, you know, or you've had some, you know, connection with right. like in a positive way. But I find it fascinating that these people who say that are also the people who don't realize looking is a verb. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like they're doing it. They're it's... projecting, but like they don't get that the art is also a thing that they're do that with I know no I I love that I'm so glad you brought that up too because I I'm always trying to rope people into being artists it's like my toxic trait I do it to everyone but I you know I always think of things <laughs> that would make someone an artist that they wouldn't think and I often think of women in general in the sense that so much of being female is presenting yourself right it's it's yes. creating verbiage around how you yes. appear or in a way that men maybe aren't as much or they can opt yeah. into it and women can't yeah. necessarily opt in or no. opt out and so my first art lessons again I didn't really like our funding was awful but my first art lessons were in the aisles of a Sally beauty supply when I wanted to dye my hair and I learned that purple cancels out yellow and how to lines and 40 degree angles and all those things like thrift store shopping I was um in high school when Abercrombie, it was like, all you had to do was wear the brands. And of course I, I couldn't afford that. So I, yeah. I had to learn how silhouette and, and fabric and, and all of these things. And so just even be, you know, if we're going to talk about look being a, a verb or, you know, it's, I feel like in a, in a way, like just being a female, like you already have engaged in that. And you can see this with people who present as female showing up on social media and not only will there be a dialogue about what they said or what they showed, but how they look, it's almost always a given. Third always, yeah. always like, it's so interesting. So I was just talking about this on live. So I don't know how to do makeup. Yeah. And the reason I don't know how to do makeup is because uh, growing up, I grew up in a community that was mixed. Um, so the East side of Cleveland is fairly mixed, but it was largely, I would say like it's mixed, but it was, so lots of people who were immigrants, but white immigrants. So I grew up with lots, almost everyone I knew was bilingual, raised bilingual, wow. but like they were Poles and Czechs and Ukrainians, right? Yeah. So they were very fair and, or they were black. Mm. And so as somebody who was neither, and I did grow up with a lot of Indians, but none of us had like makeup that we could wear. And there was like, the, we didn't have, so we had people who were Latinx, but they were Puerto Rican, they were fair. So yeah. I had no makeup that worked for my skin tone, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I didn't, so my friends would be playing around with makeup, but I didn't have anything that didn't look like clown makeup. So yeah. instead, what I though always did was, and you don't see it on my TikToks now because I work from home as a consultant. So I don't mm -hmm. leave the house so much, but um, every once in a while, like recently, I've actually been dressing the way I would dress for my old museum job because 
I, you know, I used to be pattern on pattern. I always dressed in a way that was my own style. And I still dress exact, you know, like if I'm leaving the house, I still dress like that. But I think it's, you're right. I, I think that the thing people don't realize, and it's the same thing that, about your mom, is that we are making things. And if, if the word art is scary, we mm-hmm. are making things. Yeah. In a way that like music is not. My kids both are musical, but they're not mm-hmm. making things in the music. They are- right recreating something. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently kind of wrote this piece about how intrinsic just mark making is. And I have little kids. I have a a two and a half year old now and a a seven year old and just how, yeah, they're cute. They're fun. I love seven. I love seven. That's a fun age. His mind grows so much every, I love it. It's the best, but they're little fingers scrape every surface and they just, and it's this human desire. And I I think about it and, you know, at at what point does it stop being art making or mark making? And does it start being art making? And I I think about that line and is it once you've declared it? And, but the, the point is, yes, all of us have that desire to walk past a foggy window and just put our finger in it. And I think about how, how human it is to just show up and say you were here. It doesn't have to be big art. It can be art for your family. I remember when I was a little kid, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, you know, growing up in poverty, a lot of everything we had was either made or crafted. And so that's probably why I'm an artist Uh at this point. But I remember Uh my mom, um, you know, we didn't have decorations. And so she painted with her own paints, these two little mini mouses for me and my sister, we shared a bedroom and she put them on the wall and she was always like, oh, they don't look right. They don't look right. But as a kid, I thought they were the most beautiful things I had ever seen. And I love that she made it. And it was just, and to your point, yeah, I mean, it's just where we are making and whether or not something Mm -hmm. becomes art or it's just something you're fashion, you know, the craft, you know, conversation around craft and art and all that is, I think, I think those are important intellectual conversations, but when it comes to, again, that branding that art has with the masses, I think we would do so much better if we just said, let it all, let it all. Yes. (laughs) Yes. This is so, I think about, you're saying something that I hadn't thought about in a really long time. My godmother is 99. So she was raised during the depression and her family had a big house. Like, I don't know what had happened. I don't know how it happened that they had a house, right? I don't know why it was big. It was in Chicago and they ran a boarding house. And so they made everything like the Christmas decorations. And so when I was growing up, so, you know, we would make, she would make everything when she did like toll painting and like, she taught me to faux finish and like, she taught me to hand sew and she taught me to machine sew and because everything had to be made during the depression. And I think about how one of the biggest sadnesses about the industrial age is that we forgot that we could make things to make our lives better. Yep. Yep. Right? It, like, it can start yeah. here. And not at a mouse when you click and buy something online, right? (laughs) No. And it's so true. Like you could, so we actually used to do in our family until just this year. No, we did do it. We always do Secret Santa, Mm. uh, the four of us, my two kids, my husband and I, and we do it as something you've made. Mm. And so like, and in fact, my husband has to get rid of his phone and he has like from when my daughter was like. Like it's an old phone now. Yeah, I don't know how old she was. She was little when she made his, uh, painted his cover, dad, best dad, or something. And um, but it is that kind of thing that I making. Like they've taken making away from us, right? The joy of just making something more beautiful. And I, I think about like le- historic letters that I've, you know, read over the years when I was working on, you know, collections. You'd look at a letter that was part of something, and people would be able to diagram 
you'd see like in the marginalia, right? You'd see like, oh, she was, you know, we had a dance. And then you see like just a very simple, you know? Yeah. And they're telling that story in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I I think, well, and it's funny because I have this theory about it. So I was an athlete. That's how I was able to go to college was I was a student athlete. I got a running scholarship. And, you know, I think, I hope that we are on the edge of like a creative running boom. So like in the seventies, people all of a sudden got really into running. And prior to that, you know, the industrial revolution and everything, all of a sudden our lives become more sedentary, this sort of more active lifestyle becomes less of a given and people start to say, Hey, I'm going to go out and work out. I'm going to exercise and became a norm granted, probably because the shoe companies could market it, that it had that push. But regardless, it became something where now if you put on some shoes and ran around your neighborhood, you weren't seen as like wild and crazy. You were taking care of yourself because we had identified yes. that something we lost during that industrialization is something yes. that's being a human and important for our health. And I wonder if creativity, the same kind of things happen. We've become so alienated from that, that act of making and sewing and crafting and, yeah. and to some extent cooking and just all of those things that feel so creative and art or art adjacent. If we are on the precipice of a, a I would hope of a boom of creativity where people no longer have to justify it by it being income or by it being good. And we can just in the way that runners went out and they would never make the Olympic trials, but they, they, it was worthy and it was worth their time and energy to go out and run. If we could do that with art, if we could say, it doesn't matter if you're good, it doesn't matter if, if you make the best art, but you deserve the time and the space to go out and, you know, run, but make art. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, and I think so. I think we've decided that art is one of those things that you give give up when you're becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of like you're talking about this, but what you're saying is like running. We don't say running ends at a certain age, right? And we do think that we have to do serious grown up things. And art is like a thing that is frivolous, and it's yep. not for grown ups. And like I, my so my husband and I met in um, working at an art museum, and I taught little kids like three and four year olds except you know that they couldn't use scissors and he had um the grade that was 10 11 and 12 and the reason he had three years is because there were so many fewer people who took those classes at that Mm -hmm. age yeah so we couldn't like there was almost no space in the little ones kids everybody had to do that but they got to a certain age they were supposed to do sports instead they were supposed to do music instead and also it became very gendered there was very few boys Mm. and you think who in our society really does need that opportunity to share their emotions right like little boys yeah yeah like i mean that's a tough time to be a boy and so like and so i think it's interesting that what you're talking about actually is also in some ways talking about the fundamental belief that creativity has an age like it stops we stop being creative but we start being grown-ups right right you have you heard of that nasa study where they they had some kind of test that could indicate creative genius i i forget the metric but it was like there were some controllable aspects to the study but they took five-year-olds and then seven-year-olds and then i think like 10 or 12 year olds older kids and the little little kids scored really high on the genius score it's the same test they give to nasa to sort of test Mm. their creative aptitude no i know the study okay i do yes i do Yes, because, and I we used to talk about this because there's a NASA in Cleveland. We used to co-teach with them on certain things. And so I know this study. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think that's so interesting to me is that, and this is what we used to use this study as part of like this teacher's 
thing that we used to train training we used to do. And what we were saying is that the problem, and this is actually like a thing I always think about when I, so I used to teach museum education. I used to teach studio sometimes. I had a team that did it, so I couldn't teach it to you, right? <laughs> so I can do printmaking. I did like a lot of like things that I had to learn. I think it's easier to teach a thing you felt like you had to learn. Yeah. And so, you know, like I was just doing a little bit of live before this and I was doing lino cutting. Yeah. And I was somebody was asking me like cuz I'm like dude I am like a menace cuz I've done so many lino cuts over the years. So I'm cutting towards my finger. I'm gonna, oh I know I'm gosh. not going to cut myself, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a nightmare to watch. If you like see it, you're like people have so many on? people have said over the years, what is going on? <laughs> but it's because I can like I use I mean I would cut them all the time because that's what I taught, right? And so mm -hmm. I teach that or silk screening or whatever. And so like I can cut a lino without drawing it or whatever because that's like you know you get used to doing something you do it all the time and so um one of the things that i used to drive me crazy though because there were things with tools that people aren't used to mm -hmm. unlike a pencil is that i would could tell when arts people didn't have enough arts education to be able to do certain fine motor skills mm. And in order to cut a lino, you have to. And the reason I was saying the thing is I know exactly how quick, how far deep. I know the pressure. I know I'm not going to cut my hand. Yeah. I know how to cut it with an exacto. I know those things. Um, but I came to the arts, you know, like, and I did studio art all the way through mm -hmm. with years of things like, I don't know, I had to learn how to sew in school. I had home ec, like I had all these things. And what that NASA study really is about is the fact that you don't know which thing is the thing that's gonna make you successful. Mm. When you cut off art education, when you cut off this idea that looking is a verb, when you cut off that idea that art is the why, yeah. when you cut off the idea that art is the way to let your emotions out and like you're cutting off, you don't know what you're cutting off. Yeah. And yeah. for whom, right? Yeah. Like, so if you're somebody, and I worked largely with people um, in Cleveland is, you know, socioeconomically very challenged. I worked mm -hmm. largely with people who had socioeconomic challenges. Mm -hmm. What you're basically saying is, and here's no way out. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, to kind of bring it back to to realism and, and sort of, I think, yeah. hopefully tie, relatively tie it up, <laughs> um, you know, I think another aspect to that is that if you don't sort of show skill and promise and skill in the sense of, yes. are you good at drawing? Yes. You're sort of not given a lot of time to pursue it. And so it's this sorting out process based on a really flimsy metric, right? Are you good at drawing? A theory I have when people lash out at you for the realism stuff. And I love, I love when you do that. I think, again, you handle it with so much nuance, but when people get mad at you, again, I'm looking for empathy in people. I yeah. wonder how many people are wounded from the fact that they had to give up something that they enjoyed. This and they is gave what it I up think. because they this were not exactly good at drawing, good at drawing. Yes. And so when they see people who are successful, who are also not good at drawing, if there's some yes. or subconscious frustration with that process, like I gave it up. Why does this person who's putting blobs on a canvas get to keep doing it? And I think there's some class struggle to it. So I don't think it's as cut and dry, but I do think the realism and the drawing and the, is a huge part of that conversation. No, I think you're right. I think there's so much about it that has nothing to do with this. It's like, it's just cognitive dissonance. It yeah. makes me think about um, when I was in school, like I was somebody who could draw. There was like a couple of us who could draw. And so I was like, you know, like, well, well I, you know, you can do this. Like, it's great. You know, like, and I would take like the classes, the special thing where you'd get into the scholastics and the this and that. And my best friend wasn't good at drawing. 
Kundra. And actually, I think now you would say that probably has dysgraphia, but okay. back then, like, you know, we didn't know. I think I'm almost positive that's the diagnosis. And, but it was like later in life. And so then gets to um, ceramics. We had to take ceramic. We had to take like a lot of art and we had to take ceramics. And so goes to throw something and it's almost the first time perfect. Dang. And it was like one of these crazy things where everyone was like, what? It was porcelain. Yeah. Oh, she was throwing porcelain. So hard to do too. Crazy. Like, and everyone was like, what? And the middle school art teacher um, was like, oh my God, you're amazing. And she's like, no, I can't draw. And this is a person who ended up getting comics, <laughs> but like, the, luckily that teacher was like, no, but this is a skill. Yeah. And she was like, yeah. you know, like, I just have really strong hands. And he was like, because she was a horseback rider and a sailor. And he was like, no, <laughs> nope, this is a skill. And it was just like the grace of God or whatever, you know, that saying is. But yeah. like that somebody said to her, this is good. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. And that external validation that we don't foster in kids. I, yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny because I try to do it with my son so much. And again, I, I, bringing it back to the beginning, I'm going to talk to these first graders and, you know, I'm going to yell at them just because you're not good at drawing doesn't mean you're good at art. And then I think about if you could help me, what would you say is the positive of that? Right. If it don't, if you're not yeah. good at drawing, it doesn't mean you're not good at art, but if you're good at this, if you, you know, I what affirmation, you, I actually think if you enjoy it, like I have used to always say to the kids, if this is enjoyable to you, keep doing it. Yeah. Because I think to me, it's like, or like, or you, like you would say, like, I used to say to kids, there are so many, this is what's so good about this. Mm. You know, I, I remember a student I used to have when I was years and years ago and this three and four year olds. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't think this is a privacy concern. His name was Hugh, which I thought was a funny little name for a three-year-old. <laughs> um, and it was just a cute, like very serious three-year-old. And Any project we had, he found a way to draw boxes on it, just squares, squares after squares, after squares, after squares. If we were doing like e ancient Egypt, his sarcophagus had squares on it That's if so we cute. did like you know we did abstraction squares squares <laughs> squares 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 we did have little squares. mondrian in there yeah yes and so and um and i you know like would say like you know and i was very like start i was still in graduate school and like i was like maybe you should try something else but now i think uh, but then like somebody, one, uh, somebody else who was my like senior teacher because i was a junior teacher at the time um said you know what those squares are awesome do you enjoy making those squares? Yes. And I like always think about that. Like, you know, what would you, like, you like that? That feels good to you? Keep doing that. You know, like, and I think, or like, hey, there's seven ways. These are all good. I mean, I think mm -hmm. like all these things that we say for writing, like creative writing or writing a thing, like there's seven ways to do this right. Or, you know, like that there are so many options for you. I mean, to go back to the thing I think like sort of brings this sort of full circle about realism to me mm -hmm. is that the idea that, you know, you're saying that realism, you want to speak to everyone. Mm -hmm. I think to me that um, creativity should, everyone should respond to, everyone actually has it in them to mm -hmm. be creative. Absolutely. It speaks to everybody. We just have created systems that don't allow us to realize that. Like your mother makes art even if yeah. it's like eucalyptus and not in a gallery yeah. like you know like I would say like and I am I myself shy away I would never say that I'm an artist I still wouldn't it just because having been in the arts it's like it's like there's too much baggage to it right. but I make things all the time I just said I made some that you know like I have a new printing press that I'm playing yeah. with like you know like I think that 
if you then code it also you're making something mm. you know like I think that that and like for a realist to me I actually if I was going to pick a form of art and I you know I wanted to be a medical illustrator I certainly would probably do realism yeah. I think it's the one of the hardest ones because almost everyone discounts you because it looks like something <laughs> Yeah. Well, we don't, we haven't trained ourselves to look past the object, you know? That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. So if you said to every human, you are creative, think mm -hmm. of how every artist's lives would be changed by that, right? Because every viewer would be like looking for more. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And putting it back on everyone participating. Well, I mean, that's something yeah. I say a lot is, you know, with dealing with comments over the year is like, I, it started out by, I started saying like, I only respond to people who I check and they have an art practice. You know, I only take uh, feedback from other artists, you know, and then yeah. that was just kind yeah, of a snarky yeah. way of dealing with it. But I think yeah, the yeah. more actualized version of that is people are better at giving feedback and you don't have to like it, but just better at giving feedback in general when you've been in, in the ring. That's right. Duked it out yourself. That's right. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that, that's, I think maybe where that, like some of the, I can't, I can't can't handle what you're saying because I don't know what you're saying like yeah. I hear these words I don't know anything I don't know any part of what you're talking about because yeah. like even because like you know they'll say to me like oh you don't make art so you can't possibly talk about art and I'll say like well I mean you don't know right like you yeah. just see, see me on the internet so there you go that's that but right also yeah. you don't say that about books or movies or whatever it's because you feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. yeah. like, you feel Un, and, but that's not your fault. I think like to me, you keep saying empathy and I I think I totally, it totally resonates with me. This is not your fault. There's no yeah. reason to be defensive. You just didn't have, like, it's not like I have some innate skill or knowledge in there. Like I like chose to do this. We are self-select because in our society, we self-select to even, even with, beyond the feedback loop. Mm -hmm. You know, we chose this tougher road to be in the arts. Yeah. There was other road. There were better roads to get on. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate this conversation, and I feel like you're someone I could probably talk to for hours and hours and hours. And <laughs> Me too. My I voice love is hoarse. Yeah, but I just wanted to say again, I am tremendously grateful for your presence on the internet, and as someone who's been on and who's been looking for people to talk about our history, like you are really doing something special, and I'm just grateful for you being you and thank you for talking oh, thank you. with me today. Thank you. And I just need to say, I love your channel. I love the way you actually, you do such a good job of connecting to really big issues in the arts in a really like approachable way. Like you talk about your own background, but then you also have all these really deep conversations for artists, which I don't actually see that often. I see a lot of people talking about how to yeah. get into the art world how to have a show but some of these really important conversations that you basically if you don't have those intellectually as an artist you're not gonna make it yeah yeah well I you know I wish I could say that that was all altruism but one thing I learned early in a good piece of social media advice is you know you get back what you put out and if you answer mm -hmm. a lot of like t-ball questions you're gonna have a lot of t-ball artists and not that there's uh... anything wrong with that there's lots of people for that 
but I want to have conversations. I, I don't certainly think I have all the answers. And so I want to <laughs> have these deeper conversations and right. I want to see how other people are working through these tougher questions. And so that's why I put it out there. But, you know, mm -hmm. I think social media can be as good as it is bad. And I think that that can, you know, be a tremendously good thing. So. Well, this was a pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You I've been too. enjoying your podcast. Oh, also, thank so. you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start everything to yours. Oh, thank you. Where can everyone find you? Here's your plugs. I would love to. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm I'm at Artlust um, on TikTok. And my podcast is Artlust Podcast with Sophie Chalk. Um, and you can find out wherever podcasts are. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I'll make thank sure to you. link that. I appreciate you. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed chatting with Seema. This was one of those conversations that I found myself thinking about days and days afterwards. It was really fun and exciting to talk about. And I also wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who left reviews. Leaving reviews really helps small channels like the Not Sorry Art Podcast. It helps me get found amongst all of the other art podcasts. And I wanted to say thank you to everyone who left a review last week. So if you leave a five-star review, I will read your name at the end of next week's episode. I wanted to say thank you to at Salty Amber Art. That's at S-A-L-T-Y-A-M-B-E-R-A-R-T. I want to say thank you to Danielle Robledo. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E-R-O-B-L-E-D-O. And thank you to Angelina Albury Art. That's at A-N-G-E-L-I-N-A underscore A-L-B-U-R-Y underscore A-R-T. If you'd like to have your handle read off next week's episode, make sure to leave a review. Let me know how you like the podcast. Again, it's always super helpful. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy the rest of your week and happy creating.